This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And we're going to, today we're going to talk about The Carpenters. There's a new book out called An Illustrated Discography. That's a hard word to say. About The Carpenters. And the author is Randy L. Schmidt. Hello. Hi, David. Great to visit uh, with you. I should mention this is from Mascot Books. Now, I've never heard of Mascot Books before. Is, it, is this, uh, do they publish a lot of music books? Um, you know, they've, they've done some coffee table books and some cookbooks and things, and they're, they're mainly known for their, their children's books, and they've been on my radar for uh, for a number of years, and after I started to see the, the quality of some of their, their coffee table style books, that's why I approached them when, um, when this project came up. Now, it's unbelievable, the pictures that are in this book, I mean, it's just, you look through them and you go back and you see ones you didn't see before, and... You know, where did you, how did you get access to all these pictures? Well, ever since I um, was compiling pictures for Little Girl Blue, the, the biography that I had written that came out back in 2010, I just kind of hung on to those, those contacts that I had because I had um, been in touch with different photographers for that or different archives, and um, I, I could only use, you know, a certain amount of photographs for that book, and I knew there were so many more that were still in the archives and still, uh, you know, even in, in folders and, and contact sheets and things like that, and I didn't know what I would use them for, but I, I kept all the contacts and kind of made notes of uh, photographs that I would like to revisit if ever given the opportunity. Now, uh, you, you have or haven't been in touch with Richard about this book. Does he know about the book? I, I think he's aware of it, but no, I haven't been in touch with him about the book. Uh, Richard isn't really into any projects like this unless they're kind of his brainchild. And so I learned back even a little bit before publishing Little Girl Blue that uh, it was probably better just to, to forge ahead with them on my own rather than to try and get his stamp of approval, because that usually comes with some sort of editorial control. and. Um, I, I've found out that it's it's better to just um, to go on with it and do things with respect, but not necessarily wait for his approval on all of those kinds of things. Right. I wonder how he would feel about this book. Wouldn't it be great to find out? <laughs> I did. Well, you know, I, th I think it is such a, a beautiful and respectful tribute, you know, to their music and oh, yeah, so absolutely. many, yeah. so many voices that have come together to discuss the music and to share their feelings about the songs. Um, and so, so hopefully he would would like it for that reason He's, he seems to really focus on the music i mean is he still writing songs even today i i think from time to time he does and little things will surface here and there you know he's written a few songs for um well i guess you might say kind of a fabled christmas album at this point because he's been kind of talking about it for the last 20 years or so but there are still some songs there and i think um i heard recently he might be writing some stuff um with with john bettis again which would be a, a great collaboration, but I don't know any details of that. He's, um, you know, officially retired, I guess you could say, but um, musicians and creative people, that, that spark is always kind of there, so I don't think you ever fully stop, um, stop doing music and, and loving that. Now, how many Carpenters albums are there? I mean, really, 
I mean, do you, do you do you focus on every one of them here? I mean, are there some that you didn't focus on? Well, uh, for the for the book, we did um, we focused on eighteen of them, and um, that includes the studio albums that were released during Karen's lifetime, from their debut album in nineteen sixty nine, Offering, all the way up through Made in America in nineteen eighty one, and those albums that. Uh, Richard considered Carpenter's albums, but were released posthumously after Karen's death. So we had Voice of the Heart and um, Love Lines, and um, I don't want to leave anything out there. Then um, As Time Goes By is another one that um, that came out just back in the early 2000s with some leftovers and some things from television specials and things. But really, the, they were the albums that Richard considered or felt were the official Carpenter's albums over the years. Um, also included in there are the Christmas albums. And then the solo albums, Karen's solo album, which was shelved back in 1980 and then later released in 1996. And then Richard has had two solo albums, um, Time in 1987, and 10 years after that, he came out with pianist, arranger, composer, conductor. So those are the, the 18 that we, that we profile and discuss in, in this book. And this is, I don't know what page this is on, but it's the Passage album. And this picture of Karen and Richard has is, is, got to be the most gorgeous one I've ever seen. Karen's wearing red and Richard's got the white pants on. And it's such a beautiful picture. I mean, it really oh, captures. Yeah, it's a wonderful picture. I mean, I I don't know if I've ever seen it before. She looks so good in red. Yeah, that's a gorgeous picture. And that actually originally started, believe it or not, as a black and white picture and was colorized by a, an amazing artist by the name of Chris Tasson, who does a lot of uh, Carpenter's portraits and that sort of thing. But, but oh, Chris really? colorized that. You know, there are some color pictures from that particular session. And so, yes, she was wearing red and all the colors are accurate. But, yeah, he took that from a uh, from a black and white picture and did just an incredible job colorizing it. And you would ne- you would never know that it looks so natural. I mean, everything yeah, looks gorgeous. Like- and I, it's it's one of my favorites now that I've seen it. You know, now that I and there's a lot of black and white pictures in here. I mean, I, but there's a lot of color ones too, which is wonderful. I mean, black. I mean, there's another one of her in red too. Or an old-fashioned Christmas. Do you, now, do you have a favorite album? Can you pick a favorite album, or is that, like, impossible for you? <laughs> um, my favorite album is probably the Love Lines album, which is kind of unusual really? because it was it was released after Karen's death, and it wasn't even intended to be an album. It's mostly made up of, of outtakes, but there's something about that collection of songs, which are some from Karen's solo album and some outtakes from from some of the later albums that um, didn't make it onto Carpenter's records. And I don't know what it is, but just in the whole thing, the packaging on that, I think it's just a really lovely album. From the heyday, though, of the Carpenters, let's, let me go back. That's probably a better way for me to answer first. Um, the A Song for You album, I mean, just can't be beat. It's just you know, st- stock full of of hit after hit after hit. And they could have released several more and continued with the, um, that blockbuster string of hits from A Song for You. And how did you even come... You talked to a lot of different people, and you, there's interviews in here with some of the people you talked to, and, and even Cynthia Gibb, the actress, which is amazing. Right. And you list them all in the front of the book. But how did you get in touch with all these people? Um, most of the people who... So, really they served as commentators for this book because the way that the book 
is, is laid out. You know, I mentioned there are the 18 albums, and each one of them is almost like each one of the chapters. I kind of thought of it as a collaborative album review. So I, I reached out to people who were... Um, who were kind of in my either circle of friends or acquaintances and people that I'd been in touch with over the years or, you know, even some people that I've followed on Facebook and, and become friends with in that way. And just sort of assembled teams of people to discuss these different albums. And sometimes I would, um, you know, I really started with asking them, what are your favorite albums? Which ones would you like to discuss more than others? And then I began pairing those different commentators with other commentators and thinking of, you know, who might work well together. And, for instance, um, one that I think really worked well for the Passage album, um, not only did I bring in Tom Nolan, who was a writer for Rolling Stone and had written um, liner notes for that Passage album back in 1977, I also brought in David Conjoyan and Matt Wallace, who um, were buddies all the way back to, to junior high school when they realized that they both loved the Carpenters. And then back in 1994, they co-produced the If I Were a Carpenter tribute album. And so um, they kind of have a, a history together, and, and you know, there was a lot of fun banter between the two of them. And, and the, with, with Tom in the mix, I think it really worked well for that particular album discussion. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, a really cool mix, I think, of, of people. We've got, um, you know, I'm just glancing over the list of names here. You mentioned Cynthia Gibb, and I had her um, talk with us about the Love Lines album since that was released just shortly thereafter the, the Karen Car Carpenter story was aired back in 89. Right. Um, got some people who, um, well, there's a guy who was on tour with them, Michael Lansing, back in the, in the 70s. He was one of the Carpenter's roadies. Daniel Levitin is um, a multiple um, best-selling author of, of a number of books. Um, your, this is your brain on music and um, the world in six songs. And he's, he's just a phenomenal writer and, and commentator. Um, we had people like Rob Sharrockberry, who is uh, Burt Bacharach's musical director and Dionne Warwick's musical director. And um, so I, I brought together people who I thought would, would make for interesting conversations. Now, did, then, you, did you ever meet Richard or Karen? Uh, I never had the opportunity to meet Karen. I got into their music after her death and, and was born kind of right in the middle of their heyday. So um, that's actually what prompted a lot of my, my research and um, you know, just my, my curiosity to find out all that I had missed not having experienced the Carpenters firsthand during their heyday. And, um, but I did meet as far back as 1995, 1996. I met Rich, Richard a number of times um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And what was he like? I mean, what was, what was your first impression of what, what was he like to talk to? Oh, so fascinating. Just an encyclopedic knowledge of, of everything Carpenters, of course, and, and just music in general, pop music in general. Um, the first time I met him, I had been, um, well, kind of the way that I was introduced to a lot of Carpenters fans around the world is that I had started a, a Carpenters Internet listserv back when those were things. Um, you know, the Internet had just come into people's homes back in the mid-'90s, and people were starting to connect online and finding these mutual interests and, and discussion groups and things like that. And so I organized this Carpenters 
President Richard was, um, you know, we got to talk quite a bit about that and what people were saying about the Carpenters' music and discussing online. And um, so I spent about, you know, 30, 45 minutes with him that time. And um, he was always very, very nice and kind. It was just when it came to some of these, these book projects that he nicely bowed out and said, you know, that, that he said all he wants to say having to do with, with Karen's story and, and especially with her personal issues. So um, I think that that's why he, he bowed out of... Um, you can only imagine the questions he's been asked, I mean, about about her death. and you know, Oh, absolutely. And answered, you know, time and time again the same thing. So it's understandable. Um, I do think there's lots more we can learn about Karen that doesn't have anything to do with her illness. You know, I wish he would share more of of the fun that Karen was and the, the, the you know the, the the soul of who she was because there's a lot of her that her friends have shared with me that um, and maybe he just keeps it to himself. That's understandable too. You know, this was a, a real live person and you you sense. I mean, you see. I I watch videos online of her, and I, every time you see her, you sense that she has such a great personality and such a great warmth for other people. I mean, I it can't be something that that isn't there that wasn't there, I and mean, it had to be there in some shape. But I mean, dealing with the public, you never know what the public's going to be like. It wasn't as crazy back then as it is today. I mean, today it's just nuts. But you know, back then she had to have some kind of personality. I mean, and. You just—it just comes through when you see her being interviewed. That that, that she's a, she seems like a fun-loving person, was she? I mean, what do her friends say? Uh, a great sense of humor and really just kind of a class clown type of, of person. You know, she was always joking around and. Um, she enjoyed watching I Love Lucy, and she um, she had you know fun inside jokes and and nicknames for everybody, and she was just sort of the life of the party. Um, I remember though that Olivia Newton John told me whenever I interviewed her for for Little Girl Blue, she said um, you know for as, as fun and outgoing and silly as Karen was, it was kind of like a clown where you have this this outward happiness but you could tell that there was there was some inner turmoil going on you know she she did kind of put on this this um front or this this um facade i guess to mask some of the unhappiness that was going on but all in all i think she was um somebody who enjoyed making other people laugh Right. And she was just a natural comedian. I'm looking at this picture of her backstage at the Sahara and the look on her face as she realizes somebody's <laughs> taking her picture. And it's a it's a really creepy look. It's, you look at that picture and you think, what was going through her mind when she saw who, you know. And, I'm uh, curious, what, what page are you on cause, so I can take a look? Oh, I don't know. It doesn't, I don't have, oh wait, hold on, you 75, 77, hold on, it's 81, I think. Yeah, 81. Okay. Yeah, I always like to to see which ones you, you might be and, referring. And I look at it, that look on her face, that like how how dare you take my picture kind of look. I mean, that's that's what it looks like. Now I don't know what she was thinking, but she was probably oh, nervous. Oh, another one. Yeah, where, she, where she's doing the side eye <laughs> kind of thing there. Yeah, absolutely. I I think because of the other picture that was taken backstage at that same time, you know, right above it there, she was obviously clowning around for the camera and and having fun there. Um, a, a guy by the name of Ed Carafe is the one who um, photographed those, and and there are about thirty pictures in the book that come from his archives, 
And not only did he photograph them for the covers of some of their albums, like um, the Horizon album from 75 and um, A Kind of Hush in 76, right. he also followed them on tour. He was, um, he was on airplanes with them. He was backstage in their dressing room. So I think he was at least a welcome person. I don't know what the look is that she's giving him necessarily. I think it's just one of her many silly looks that she would give people. Now, there's um, a, now I remember when there was, there was VCR and I had the, the tape of all the different vi music videos that they had. I, I played that thing so much, I think it broke. <laughs> it was just, I got to the point where I couldn't play it anymore, and it was so such a wonderful compilation of all the, the music videos that they had. The Police Mr. Postman, I remember those good old dreams, which is a, such a beautiful, beautiful song. I mean, there, there's so much beauty in her music, and Richard, her and Richard's music. I mean, you just, you just, it's just incredible to listen to some of it. Now, I don't like every single song. I'm not real fond of calling occupants. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that song, but that song creeps me out for some reason. Well, you know, that's that's been the interesting thing about this book, and people who have read it start to finish, people who have, you know, received advanced copies, because it's technically not out, even though we were able to get a, a bunch of advanced copies. There was a recent um, Carpenter's 50th anniversary celebration for a bunch of fans in California, and so you know, 150 Carpenters fans all gathered together. We had to make sure they could get the book. And so, um, anyway, a lot of them have been, you know, reading it start to finish and, and going back to listen to the music kind of with fresh ears now because they go through and read all of this insight and opinions from, from well, uh, there were 33 different commentators that contributed to the book. And sometimes, you know, you're, you're listening along to them and you're going, oh, yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. That's exactly how I feel when I hear that song. And then other times you hear things that they're saying and you're, you're thinking, what? Are they even listening to the same song? Are you kidding me? So these, these different opinions, um, you know, take them for what they're worth. And sometimes they, they send you back to listen to something and you go, wow, I never heard that. And I'm so glad, you know, it was pointed out to me. And um, so I, I hope it sends people back to the original records and, and, and makes them think and listen um, all over again. That's kind of the point, is just to celebrate the music and to celebrate the memories. And, and, and I'm looking at the mentioning of, of a song called I Need to Be in Love, which is, a, which is another beautiful one. There are some that just really speak to me and others I, I like but I don't love. And I, don't, and I guess that's true of anybody, any artist that you, that's out there today. You can't like everything they've ever written. I mean, there's, there's just some that speak to you more than others and some that, are, that you never get tired of, you know, hearing over and over. I get a kick out of some of these uh, tickets in here, how the low prices on some of the tickets. All right, the concert tickets. Right. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to um, to kind of supplement and accentuate, I guess you could say, the, um, the rest of the book with all of these um, items of memorabilia. So there are things like ticket stubs and bumper stickers and concert programs and promotional items and things like that that... Um, that tell part of the story and um, I, you know sheet music covers and and 45 picture sleeves so it's, it's really neat I think and I hope people enjoy that um, seeing those items that that people may have from all around the world really and look at the the, the picture of a Christmas portrait they uh, right it on when it's listing number 10 Christmas portrait the opposite picture there yeah and you can see how thin she is in the picture, and it's hard not to feel sad when you look at that. 
because you can see that you know she needs to gain some weight and you know it it and it's obviously a later picture i guess it was taken what, what i don't know what this year is that probably 78 this was their um their second christmas tv special that's when that that photograph that comes from there and it, and it's just heartbreaking to see that and you think well, what doesn't she see that if she looks at herself in the mirror but i guess you don't see that when you have when you're going through what she went through you don't see the the thinness you don't see I mean, it's an, it's a very interesting and that of course that has a song merry christmas darling which is one of my favorites every christmas we hear that song and, and it's a pleasure to hear it every christmas you know, it's just one of those songs you can hear over and over again, and just love, and just, and you know, and what, and you can't help be curious as to how she was handling everything. I mean, what what was going through her mind, and how her parents must have been worried sick about her. Right. Everybody, well, I think it's such a distortion of reality for the for the victim, not really realizing what they're doing to themselves all the while. You know, and you wonder where she got that the thinness, wanting to be thin. I mean, there's a, and it's still going on today. I mean, there are so many women out there who, who, who want to be thin. I mean, whatever they consider thin, you know, and they never seem to be thin enough. A lot of women, right. I and mean, it's really, it's really heartbreaking. You, well, I think hers was definitely deeper seated than that too. I think you know it goes back to um, maybe even childhood and familial relationships, and there, there's so many things that play into that. It's hard to you know point the finger at one thing. I guess the the only thing good really that that came from such a tragic and untimely death is the attention that it brought to the eating disorders like anorexia uh, around the world because most people didn't know that know that word or know that term right. until after the headlines of her death and um for a long time that was really what people thought of when they thought of Karen Carpenter you know the singer who who died from that and I think luckily after this many years you know we're 50 years since the Carpenters debuted now and um you know that's almost like what three decades since um since Karen's death so we're we're starting to to I think well we've we've gone more than just starting we're definitely in a time where we're revisiting the the wonders of her voice and and celebrating her for being a, a phenomenal singer and um, a vocalist that is has inspired so many other singers over the years. People don't just think of her as the singer who died from anorexia, as they seem to for a while. Now, on page 138, there's a picture of Richard with his wife, Mary. Is he still married to her? He is, yeah. They, they married back in 1984 and have five children and live in oh. Thousand Oaks, California. Five children. And I remember I, I was on AOL one time, a long, long time ago, and, and I, I happened to look up Richard Carpenter, and I found, I was able to find his email address on AOL. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I wrote to him, and he actually responded to me, which was amazing. And it wasn't a big, but he just said hello, and yes, it was him. And I, it was a thrill for me, I mean, to even get an email from him. It's yeah. funny, I think they still use AOL. Not many people do, but I'm pretty sure that the, uh, from what I've heard and seen, Carpenter's uh, family still has an AOL account. And it was so wonderful to hear from him. So it's nice to know he's a regular guy. I mean, if he weren't a regular guy, he would, probably wouldn't even have answered me. Sure. And, you know, and, and uh, you just wonder. I mean, all I can think of is, well, I wish I could have met them at some point, just to say hello and just... And you can only imagine the, the people that did meet them and tell them how, how much their music meant to, to them. And, and everybody has a personal story about it, you know, something that, some kind of memory. Uh -huh. 
but I mean, the, some of the songs. I mean, "Top of the World." I mean, and you know, where did do we know where "Top of the World" came from? I mean, where that song was originated from? I mean, did is that just an original song by him, or was it? It is an original. It is. Sorry, I said that wrong. It is an original song by um, Richard and John Bettis, and the story on that one is um, the Carpenters had leased a couple of Lear jets back um, when they really had made it. I guess um, the end of '71 into the beginning of '72, and um, they had taken John Bettis, who had written some songs early on with them, and you know he was a college buddy of theirs. They had taken him on tour with them at some point. And, you know, they they reached a certain altitude up above the clouds, and he looked out and he said, well, you're definitely on top of the world now, aren't you? And the story goes that Richard said, ah, oh, good, good title for a song. And so it, it originates there. They uh, That's where the, what a fascinating, the song came from. What a fascinating man he must be, Richard, that he can think of things, that things come to him like that. And he, he always seems to know what, what songs were best for Karen, what would work for him, what wouldn't. What yeah, kind of he has a, such a, a gift for finding songs in unusual places. You know, people. I think he could actually. It seemed, It sounded like he could actually hear a song and know whether it was good for her or not. Right. Know what it would sound like in her key, and he, he said that he can kind of hear the finished song, the orchestrations and everything, in his head. Just um, you know, even hearing something that's maybe a plain um, demo track or something like that. I mean, that. what would have happened to the Carpenters had she never gotten out from behind the drums? I mean, she, she was such a good drummer. But the fact that they encouraged her to sing, how did, who, who, I wonder who figured out she had such a good voice. I mean, how did that come about, that, that her voice was, I mean, did Richard hear her voice at some point? Did he know she had a yeah. good voice? He, he did, and it was actually right around the time that she started drumming. The, the voice and the drums all kind of happened around the same time, so when she was in high school. And... Um, I think that they knew the voice was different and unusual because it was so low, but it wasn't really until it hit the microphone that it became so magical because um, I'm sure it was pleasant and nice to listen to just acoustically in the room, but there are certain voices like that that the microphone just loves them. And Karen's is one that, you know, when it hit a microphone, it became, you know, 10, 100, however many times greater than it was um, just in the room. So I think that whenever they heard her put to tape, they realized we've got something really special here. And you mentioned in the book about the fact that she sang so close to the microphone and how unusual that was at the time to do that and they were always breaking ground doing things that nobody else was doing the guitar riffs that he talks about and the, there's different there's different riffs in some of the songs that had never been tried before that people were like you know you can't do that kind of thing and they did it and it, and it worked so well mm -hmm. you know there's some discussions in the book where people are talking about the groundbreaking um that that was going on as far as the carpenters i'm, I'm remembering i mentioned a minute ago that um guy rob Sharakberry, who is uh, Bacharach's music director he was talking about how what the carpenters were doing in 1970 on their close to you album that it was pre-queen and years before a night at the opera uh or a day at the races and these these albums by queen and that technologically they were pushing boundaries at the time and they were kind of on the front end of of that overdubbed sound that became what everybody was doing a few 
years later. Right, exactly. And, and so, Rich, did Richard write all of the music too, or did he just do the words? Or what? I mean, he must have written some music. I mean, what what was his? Was it different for every song, or did he write the words and the music? He usually just wrote the music, sometimes words. He was not a lyricist um, all that often. You know, as I mentioned several times, John Bettis was um, right. sort of considered to be the third carpenter in a lot of ways. Um, and so he wrote the lyrics more often than not. Richard wrote the music, but Richard was the one who found so many of the songs, and he found them in such unusual ways and places. Um, the story about where We've Only Just Begun came from a bank commercial, and for all we know, um, came from a movie Lovers and Other Strangers. And there are just other stories like that kind of peppered throughout the, the history of the Carpenters, where Richard heard something that all these other people had heard, you know, a hundred times and not thought anything about it, and Richard thought, that's a hit song. And more often than not, he was right. Sometimes he was off as the years went on. I, I think he was less accurate with some of that. Um, but but still had such a, a keen ear, I think, for something that would work right with Karen's voice and their approach. Right, exactly. How much time did you spend putting this book together? I mean, to get it all... Now, you're saying it, it, is out, it, it will be out in the United States soon? The official release date is July 2nd, and I know that sounds like a long time off. Um, a lot of times, once these books get to the warehouse, they go ahead and ship a little early. So I wouldn't be surprised if that if that doesn't happen. And it did that with Little Girl Blue. I remember the, the release date for that back in 2010 was supposed to be July something. And it hit stores like the last week in May, and I was just shocked because people were already finding it in stores. So I'm, I'm kind of seeing that that seems to be a trend in the book world, that they more often than not the books come out early. Um, but as far as how long it took, this is it's been in my mind in some way, like I mentioned before, ever since Little Girl Blue came out in 2010. I always thought, you know, I'd like to do something like a coffee table book that would be you know, for collectors and the diehards. Right. But um, I didn't know if it would be possible. Really, the last three years or so, this has been um, heavily on my mind, and, you know, I've been kind of working toward it in different ways. Um, and it wasn't until... I guess about a year ago that I realized, okay, this is going to happen, and I want it to happen in time for this fan convention that I mentioned earlier that just happened a few weeks ago. And this is the 50th anniversary year for the Carpenters having signed with A&M Records in April of, of 1969. So I wanted that, that tie-in to happen. You know, I wanted it to, to be a 50th, not necessarily labeled as a 50th anniversary book, but to come out during this 50th anniversary year. Right, exactly. I mean, you just did, did such a beautiful job with this book. I mean, it's just the pictures, and they all seem... In, I love this picture of Richard with his Maserati. You know, I didn't even know he had a Maserati. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't live, they didn't seem to live that, that extravagant of a lifestyle. I'm sure they bought things that were expensive, but you didn't, sure. you didn't see them in diamonds or, you know, or, or know that they were, you know, not, not like Liberace where it was all over his fingers uh. and, and what he was wearing. And, you know, he had that lavish lifestyle that he seemed they to love. They still remain, you know, close to home and, and lived in Downey for, for so many years and um, were never all that extravagant. You know, they liked nice things and 
they liked the things that money and fame could buy them, but they were, like, like you said, never really extravagant and overboard with anything. You know, they invested their money well as um, young musicians under the advice of people like Herb Alpert, who were kind of guiding them along the way. Um, you know, they, they bought houses and apartment buildings and things that um, would, would keep, would, investments that would keep on giving. Right. Exactly. And I love, the, I love these little reflections you have at the end of the album, you know, from the different people about different different things that when, like Richard, and there's a lot of things from Richard. So, I mean, Richard has so much so much wonderful stuff to say. I mean, he's so interesting. And like I said, I mean, you know, it, it, to be able to pick his mind would be an amazing experience, you know, just because he has so much knowledge about music, like you said. And, and yeah. And that knowledge, I mean, the things that the way he describes it just sound it just makes it more and to be able to sit down at the piano and just play like he can do is just something that thrills me no end. Well, I, the things you, you're mentioning there, um, I wanted each chapter to include uh, a full page of of reviews, and I call them reviews and reflections. And so there are reviews of the albums from whether it be Billboard or High Fidelity Magazine or Stereo Review. And then the reflections part is what Richard and Karen and their associates, whether it be Herb Alpert or John Bettis or um, you know, other people affiliated with kind of the Carpenter's operation, um, what they said about the albums in that original time, you know, what they, they said back then and then over the years as, as Richard's looked back over things and um, kind of reevaluated, I wanted to include that. So, yeah, every album has has one page of reviews and reflections. Right. But it, and, and they're amazing. So many wonderful pictures of Richard, too. He's so photogenic, you know, and that's, you know, a lot of times if you're not photogenic, the pictures don't look good. I mean, but he's, he's really a very photogenic man. I mean, and not everybody's photogenic. There are people, you know, that just you, that don't take good pictures or don't look like they're having a very good time in a picture or like having their picture taken. But he seems yeah. to enjoy it. Well, yeah, I wanted this to be a combination of, you know, an interesting book to read, obviously, and as I mentioned before, something that would send people back to re-listen to the music and hopefully hear it with, with new ears. But I wanted it to be visually pleasing, too. So it's, you know, 192 pages and um, well over 200 images throughout and full color. And I think the designer just did a fantastic job. You know, he's done other books from different publishers on uh, everybody from Metallica and Pink Floyd and, and mostly rock groups. And um, I knew after seeing some of his other work that he's the one we wanted to, to seek out to do the design for this. And I think he did a great job. Are there any albums you, you didn't put in the book that you wish you had now? Or did you pretty much get them all, all the ones you wanted? I think I got all that I wanted. You know, some people have asked, what about the live albums and things? And, you know, there was a live at the Palladium in, that came out in the U.K. Um, in 1976. There was a live in Japan that was released in Japan in 74. But I, I 
you could kind of go on and on as far as adding things and, well, what about this compilation or that compilation? And I tried to stay strictly with the United States releases, their original discography, and there's only one compilation included, and that's the, the singles 69 to 73. Well, that's an that was, classic. I yeah, that's that. such a, a mammoth big seller, you know, and in, in a way, the way that it's arranged and how everything flows so beautifully, um, it warranted a discussion on its own, even though the songs had all been released in other ways and on other albums. Right. Now, talk about this cover picture. This is a very, it's kind of like a somber picture of her and Richard. I mean, they both look so, they look almost sad on the cover. What is this from? It is a little more serious. This is one of the outtakes from their 1975 Horizon album sessions. And um, it's, it's just a photograph I've always loved of them. You know, they were photographed so often with their... Um, you know, huge smiles side by side looking right into the camera and um, as Richard called it, uh, goody four shoes or uh, toothy twosome. You know, they, they were called all kinds of different names over the years. And there was just something about this that, that captured a more serious tone and I think sets the tone for the book being, you know, a serious look at their at their music. And um, not meant to be sad in any way, but meant to be, I think, reflective. Exactly, and you're right. It, it, and it, you look at it; it's almost it's almost captivating. When you pick the book up, you think, "Wow!" And of course, you know what you you know what she went through, and you think, "Well, I wonder if there was the beginning of that." I mean, every picture you see of her, you think, "What was she? Well, the poor woman. What was she going through?" Right. And why why couldn't anybody help her? And you know, all these questions go through your head, and you know there's answers to them, but you know, and, and you don't you don't want to pry or anything, but you 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 wonder that wonderment is like is always going to be there. You know what what could somebody have done that wasn't done? You know, or, or what what could have what could have been? You know what what music could yeah, have been absolutely. if had she? And you know, now you you own all the albums and all all the recordings. Absolutely, yeah, in, in quite a few different versions. <laughs> you know, everything from from eight tracks to LP and and CD and just about any other. You format have eight tracks, also. I have some reel to reels. You know, I used to try and collect a little bit of everything, and uh, there's something about it. I've decided at some point if I can't be a completist and you know have one of everything and all just everything that's out there, I don't really want to make being a collector my main thing. So I think it was around the time I was, you know, getting close to finishing up the book Little Girl Blue when I just kind of realized that, you know, it's not about collecting stuff so much anymore. Yeah, I've got the albums and, you know, I've got lots of recordings and things, but it became more about collecting the stories and finding the people who had worked with them and who knew them and and were, were part of that carpenter's circle and getting their stories. And so that's kind of where I turned my collecting to, and if that makes sense. Now, there was another book, book written about the carpenters. It was written by Ray somebody. who I forget the name uh, of it. Ray, Ray Coleman, yeah. Yes. He, was a, he was a writer for, um, I think he was maybe even senior editor for a period of time at Melody Maker, um, the publication in the U.K. And uh, that was uh, as close to, to being a Richard autobiography as you could have, because that was really Richard's um, version of the Carpenter's story. And Ray did a really, really great job and came in, but he was kind of 
under the, the editorial control of Richard and the family. And so I think he would have liked to have gone other directions with that book, but um, to keep it official and endorsed by the Carpenter family, he had to go their, their route. Well, one, of, one of the things that, that came through in that book for me is that is he made it sound like she, they, they were very perf- they were very much perfectionists, both of them. Ray, uh, yeah. Karen and Richard were very much. Do you get that impression from all you've heard about them? Oh, the- absolutely, yeah. And, and I think their music shows. I mean, it's it's sad when you think about it, though, because the perfection that gave us those records and gave us those amazing recordings is probably the same perfection that took her from us. Right. You know, because there was there was. Such and I don't want to. I don't. I'm not out to to say anything bad about her because nothing can. I, I I will always respect her. As a, and I mean, I don't. Nobody knows what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, none of us anyway. I mean, we only you know what we hear. But you know, it, 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 it what came through in his book is that she you know she didn't tolerate things that weren't people even giving their best and things like that and i mm-hmm. i guess i guess you would get that way with with the, you want the music to sound perfect i mean that's let's face it any any musician doesn't want to hear any flaws in their music so i don't i don't mean to i don't want to tarnish her reputation or anything not that they 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 were good good people i'll never believe otherwise but yeah you know i don't think she she wasn't like a diva or anything but she she definitely both of them had such high standards of excellence and whereas some some concerts you go to and and you can tell you know they want to um have fun and ad lib and play a different version of the song than what you're used to for some reason the carpenters really wanted to try and replicate the sound on the recordings and so improvisation and you know playing a little bit outside the lines here and there wasn't really allowed and so that was one of the things you know that I think Ray Coleman's book talks about some and my book to some extent talks about you know that there really wasn't much room for those musicians to to play anything different than they played the night before and the weeks and months before I don't know did I interview you for your book I can't even remember now um, it's it's been so long. I it sounds really familiar. I, I don't know. Are yours are yours archived online? Uh, not not the old ones like that. Not, not the old ones, ones that are okay. that are that old. I mean, I still have copies of some of them. Not all of them, but I it see, seems I, familiar to me that, that we might have talked back whenever that came out in 2010. It's very possible. It's weird. I'm thinking as I'm doing this interview. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, did I interview him? I can't remember. <laughs> and I feel like such an idiot because I don't remember. I I don't. I'm not one that writes everything down. I, sometimes yeah. I wish I were, but I'm not. And I I do remember that book, and I do think I did read it, but I I cannot remember for the life of me whether I interviewed you for it. And I mean, you're you're such a wonderful person to interview because you're so open. I mean, to be. Oh, thank you. You don't hold back. I mean, I have, I have people that I interview and they talk and talk and they don't stop talking, and you know, and it's it's difficult sometimes because you can't get a word in edgewise. But you yeah. you you have to let the interviewer get that word in because it, it's important to both. You have to have the back and forth. If you if you only have one way, it's kind of it kind of gets boring after a while. I think exactly. Because you never know what, and you know you don't know what I we've we haven't discussed any of this, so no, you didn't know what I was going to ask you before. Not at all. And you know, this is uh, one of the first interviews I've given on this on this new book. So yeah, it is hard for me to remember because there were so many interviews back around that um, little time. Little Girl Blue came out, but um, this is one of my first interviews for this this new one. Is, is there any one of her songs that you absolutely do not like? <laughs> oh goodness. 
one that that I'll skip over um, on the Passage album, and it's not calling occupants. It's um, Man Smart, Woman Smarter. Hmm. There's something about it that just grates on my nerves. <laughs> um, you know, there's nothing that that she ever recorded that's bad in that you know she sings a wrong note or she sings off or that you know there's nothing like that at all and everything that they did they did you know up to like i said before a certain quality um for sure but there are some that i might skip over from from time to time very few um I, I I can't help but say, and I, this is true of me, I like certain songs. and I, the, There are certain songs that I will listen to over and over and over again, and there are more than a few of them, a lot more than a few. But that's just the way I am. I, I, I like what I like, I don't like what I don't like. And right. I, some of the some of the way it sounds just doesn't appeal to me. And that's, it's not, you can't knock somebody for being that way. Everybody likes what they like and don't. I mean, you you listen to a song, I listen to certain songs and I think, what do people hear in this song? But I, I've never really felt that that way about very many of the Carpenter songs. Maybe Calling Occupants, I'll give you that one. But I still, but you know, there's, <laughs> I, I laugh when I think about that song for some reason because it's so goofy. It's such a goofy song. But well, I think they had a, a kind of a twisted sense of humor sometimes. So they they. They saw the humor in that, and I think they were thinking maybe this would be just the right kind of novelty song or something to maybe give them their next hit. And, I mean, it gave them some attention, definitely, but not quite the hit that they had hoped for. Now, you think about that. You, 50 years later, here it is 50 years later, people still listen to their music. People still love Karen's voice. That doesn't seem to ever, that it will ever change. The beauty of it, the the, the openness of it, the... the the, almost like she's telling a story and being autobiographical. She's she wants to be in love. She's she feels like she can never fall in love. She feels like you know she's she's hurting somewhere. There's hurt there somewhere, and it's coming out in her music. And that's what haunts it. That's what haunts the music. But that makes the music more beautiful because it's real. Well, you don't get that from from many singers nowadays because it's either a performance like look what I can do kind of thing or you know so much um, well she didn't she didn't rely on her sexuality that was never a part of her her stick you know no and it was never there that that she you know dressed a certain way or looked a certain way if anything that that went against them you know nowadays they find somebody who who just looks fantastic and looks great in in their clothes and out of and they market them and doesn't matter if the talent's there or not and with with Karen and Richard the the image most of the time worked against them because they were kind of corny and and you know white bread and and a little too straight and and that sort of thing sometimes but the music i think broke through that in a lot of ways and now we just don't have that many people who can just rely on their talent they have to be this big produced act that you know it's it's acrobatics sometimes vocally and literal acrobatics as part of the I wonder how many I wonder how many teenagers listen to their music and enjoy it I'm curious you know time to time since I have been um, kind of this internet carpenters guy over the years and I would get um, emails and things from kids who were 12 and 13 years old and just discovering their music and I still hear from time to time teenagers who have 
learned about the music from their parents or grandparents or um, in the case of there's a new um, Carpenters with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra that, that Richard has uh, worked on with, with an orchestra in London. And so there are things every few years that reintroduce it to um, potential new generations of fans. Um, you know, I'm thinking of there's a, a fan 18 years old in, in England that's just gung-ho and out there um, promoting Carpenters constantly. So it, it does appeal to young, um, discerning young listeners. You know, I think that it's, it's a special thing that they can hear and sense in the music. It's not for everybody. Yeah, you know, the, the official figures, what, over 100 million copies sold of their albums? And, and you know, I wonder if they, if they just stopped counting at some point, because I've never heard a figure higher than that. But you know, by, by now we should be approaching 125 or 150, but it seems like everybody just kind of... Um, gives them that, that figure of, of more than a hundred million and that's what Richard keeps saying. So until I hear a new a new figure, that's what we've used in the promotion for oh, this book. And I wanted to ask you also about some of the souvenirs in this book. Could you picture some of the souvenirs and they wrote little, you know, hello to these are these things that, that some fans got from the Carpenters themselves? Um, you know, I'm thinking of like maybe the pennant. Are you seeing that pennant that's kind of a, like a little flag with their their signatures there? Um, some of those things in there were fan club items, and a lot of times those signatures were you know facsimile. They were they were printed on there and and sold that way. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others. You know, I've got there's some business cards in there um, with with their information and and people who worked with them. Sheet music, as I, I mentioned before, scrolling through, kind of looking at some of the things. Yeah, I'm trying uh, to find covers of magazines, the the little stickers, like um, what they call the hype stickers, mm -hmm. that would be you know on the on the cover of the album that would say like. Well, some um, of them, some of the ones I'm, I'm thinking of had actually have their signatures on it, and they're addressed to somebody. It's like somebody. Somebody owns them. Somebody got them from the carpenters and signed, and they're they're really interesting because you don't see her signature all that much on them. And yeah. I, now I can't think what I was. Th I'm looking through it here, trying to find one. Of course, you can't find. Whenever you're looking for it, it's hard to find it, and when, especially when you're rushing and trying to get it out. And, <laughs> But I'm, I'm oh, like I'm thinking on um, on pages 32 and 33. There's um, sort of a felt pennant that has their logo on it. And you can see in the background there, it's signed, hi, Karen and Richard. And right. That may be one of the things that you're you're referring to. Hmm. Yeah. The, I just wonder, you know, there, there were people that, they that, here's one here. See, here's a, a best wishes carpenters, Karen and Richard. And, and it's on like a, a postcard. It's on page 102. Okay. And it, it's obviously was given to somebody. I don't know who. Uh here's a note here for a warm and full holiday season we send you our wishes yeah that that was a um a christmas card that they had printed up multiple you know they sent out to many many fans um that year at christmas time so that was the official carpenter's christmas card that year yeah and what's the what is the thing at the bottom then who who's best wishes carpenter is that another christmas card oh, um those you see how they're they're in um usually in white those were facsimile photographs, so the fan club would make those up. You know, I don't know how many that would be made, but probably hundreds or maybe even a thousand of them. And they would sell those. You could send in, you know, of a, a couple of dollars for the different photographs that, from their latest TV special. And so those 
signatures were usually pre-printed uh, or, or printed and then um, copied for all of those. So not necessarily one person, but for all to enjoy. Did they, did they seem to enjoy doing to the TV specials? I know sometimes, you know, groups don't necessarily enjoy doing the TV right. specials. Um, Karen definitely did, and she was interested in acting, and she she wanted to do a musical, and she had you know really high hopes and aspirations of of becoming an actress. And um, with Richard, it wasn't something that was natural for him, and he was usually kind of awkward and didn't feel comfortable in what was going on. So Richard definitely didn't like the TV shows, and especially all the the silly skits and um, and things like that that were just kind of corny and hokey, but. Karen, with her sense of humor and comedic timing and everything, that was kind of a natural thing for her, and and she did really enjoy the TV specials. Right, exactly. It, it seemed like one did and one didn't, so that it's understandable. It's not for everybody. You know, some people are awkward around different things. You know, you just never know until you experience it. Yeah, she was just a natural singer, dancer, comedian, actress. It all. She kind of had it all. And I wish she'd had the opportunity to explore more of those things. Um, one of the interviews that I did with a good friend of hers, uh, a lady by the name of Frenda Franklin, Frenda explained to me that the Carpenter family couldn't really see that you could do all these different things. That they, if she went off and recorded a solo album, or if she were to do a movie or something, that it was kind of looked at as maybe her abandoning Richard or leaving the Carpenters. That they couldn't see that you could do all these different things and still be part of the carpenters exactly they just thought they just thought of them as a duo everything together mm -hmm. doing everything together you know and right and 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 how often do you listen to your albums i mean do you, do you listen to at least once a day <laughs> you know with with this um with this project i've been listening so much more of course uh, more more weekly before now but um now i've i've been into it more because of all these discussions they've got me re-listening and, and rethinking things and as i would do these discussions and these um well they were phone um conference calls basically is how we did these and then they were transcribed into these conversations that you can read throughout the book but after i would get off the phone with these these people and and I, w I would go right back to the music and want to hear what they were talking about or the things they were hearing that excited them. And so I hope that that's what the readers will do as well, and it'll send them back to... Can you imagine if... I mean, if, 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 this would never happen, but if I ever got to go to Richard's house and have him play some of the songs for me, what a thrill, a thrill of a lifetime that would be <laughs> to hear him play these songs that he knows so well and to bring back all those memories of them. I mean, it's got to be a thrill. I mean, to be... I, 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 I'm jealous of his wife, what she must listen to, I mean, and just enjoy. I mean, it would it would thrill me no end. Maybe she gets tired of it after a while. I don't know. I don't know how she feels. <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, you just wonder what... Well, I mean, there's something about piano music that's always thrilled me to death. I mean, I, when, I know when Barry Manilow goes on talk shows and he sits and he plays at the piano, it's just, it's so amazing to listen to. Well, yeah, it's, it's a different type of storytelling. You know, singers are storytellers, and I think um, really good instrumental musicians aren't just 
good at technique and playing, you know, they, they communicate in a way. And in, in the way that Karen was so conversational in her singing and connected with people, I think Richard has a similar touch to his to his playing. It's it's definitely a, um, you know something full of feeling and emotion. And he's a, a great pianist. Now, will this book be available in Barnes and Nobles and bookstores all over the country? It'll definitely be Barnes & Noble online. I think it's still up in the air whether or not it's going to be stocked right. on the shelves yet. Well, just waiting. we're just waiting to hear back, because uh, any time a publisher has a book like that, they, they pitch it to Barnes & Noble, and then Barnes & Noble has to say, yes, we want this many copies, and we're going to put it in this many stores or whatever. So that hasn't been determined yet. Um, crossing my fingers for that. But yeah, all other booksellers and anybody... Any bookseller can find it and order it in their system. And Amazon, it'll be on Amazon? Yeah, it's already on Amazon and Barnes & Noble for pre-orders online. Well, I wonder, so you're saying that the Barnes & Noble store, it's going to happen in the stores, it's just a question of how many, or, or it's not 100%? Not 100%. Really? Um, like I said, it's it's available for pre-order on their site, but there are yeah. so many books that are pitched to Barnes & Noble that don't get picked up. And even, you know, some of my other books that I'm thinking back But they're such a big group, I can't imagine they'd say right. no. It just, that, that, that boggles my mind that they would even have to think twice. But I guess... <laughs> well, I, I hope you're right. But, you know, uh, I've had... Little Girl Blue was stocked in just about every um, Barnes & Noble store back when it first came out. And then I've done some other books along the way. I did a book on Judy Garland and one on Dolly Parton. And even though those are, you know, huge names, um, just the, the type of book or whatever ended up being not what Barnes & Noble was looking for in all their stores. So certain ones that maybe had a big music section or were known for their entertainment books and things like that, then they would stock it there. And I think that may be the, the situation with this. So what's, you know, what, what's going to be your next project now? Do you have a project in the works, or can you talk about it? Or is yeah, it you know, I've been working off and on for, uh, well, since about 2012, sort of piggybacking this project on other projects that <laughs> have an advance or some money actually attached to it. But um, there's, a, there's a book that I'm going to be um, publishing through the University of Mississippi Press. They have a Hollywood Legends series, and it's uh, about a man by the name of Earl Carroll and his star showgirl, Burl Wallace. And they were, they were a couple. And Earl was sort of a figure like um, Florence Ziegfeld back in New York in the 20s. And in the 30s and 40s, he took his um, his theater and his, his show to, uh, they left New York and they went to, to Hollywood. And it was the place to see and be seen on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood in the 1940s. And it's just kind of an untold chapter in Hollywood history. I got kind of turned on to the idea, of, like I said, back in 2012 or so. And it just keeps me coming back to it for some reason. It's a story that wants to be told. And so um, that's my next project. But it's not a big name that everybody right. immediately goes, oh, yeah, I know who that is. <laughs> right. And that's that's wonderful. I mean, you're, I guess you always have ideas in the back of your head what, what I'm going to do next and how I'm going to. Now, are you going to go to different bookstores promoting this book? I am. Actually, we have um, not so many that are set up with bookstores. I have one for sure that's a, a bookstore. I live right outside the Dallas, Texas area, so there's a, a great bookstore, indie bookstore in Dallas called Interabang Books that I'm doing in the end of June. Um, but I am going to be in New York in um, 
in June, June 16th, Father's Day actually, we're doing a, a book launch party there in, in New York at a place called the Juke Bar. And um, quite a few of the the commentators who have, you know, contributed to these conversations in the book um, that live in that area are going to be present for that. So that's going to be exciting. Um, and then I'm going actually to London for two events. We're doing um, a book launch, two different ones, at um, the Backroom Bar, which is part of Hard Rock Cafe in London. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. You got a lot. You got a lot to. You got a lot to do there. It's an exciting summer. Yeah, I'm an elementary music teacher by day, and I've only got um, well a little less than two weeks left of, of my school year. So I'll be spending the summer promoting this book and uh, finding ways to share it with with fans around the world. And that's uh, what what more beautiful thing is there than that? And, and what a beautiful book. I mean, just a. I mean, it's heavy, and it, it's got a <laughs> it's got a really nice smell to it too. I love books that have smells. Doesn't that sound <laughs> yeah, really funny. strange? No, that's that's a book nerd thing. I mean, <laughs> people who understand it definitely understand what you mean. <laughs> exactly. Other people. So, I mean, it, it just, I just love the smell of it because when you open it up, well, I'd be it, really sad it. if you said that it stinks. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I'm looking at the back on and there her singing, and I see Richard. Is that Richard playing a, an instrument there? I oh, know he's at the piano. On the, the back cover, the guy playing the was that the is that a that's not a flute? It must be like a clarinet or something. Oh, it's not uh, a clarinet. You know, that's, that's, there's an electric flute. Are you looking at the back cover? Yeah, yeah, that's a shot from um, from their tour in 1976. And so, yeah, Richard's at the piano. Um, Karen's there. Cubby O'Brien's on drums. There's a guy playing electric flute, and then uh, some vocalists. I think you can see there in the background. There's Tony Peluso, who usually plays guitar. He's at like the organ, maybe. And how many of those people in that picture, are, besides Richard, are still alive? Um, you know, looking at that picture there, I think the only one who is, well, there are two that have passed. Um, Doug Strawn, who was one of their um, reed players and, and vocalists, he's the guy there on the back cover on the left that's standing at the microphone. He passed away several years ago. Um, and right behind him, the guy sitting, I think he's playing the organ back there behind, um, that was their guitar player, Tony Peluso. And uh, he died after a, a battle with cancer a number of years ago. But the rest of the band is, is pretty much still living, but they don't necessarily um, talk all that much. Occasionally they'll come back together for maybe a documentary um, or something like that. But there are even there's one of them um, that even Richard hasn't heard from in... In something like thirty years, so um, I think it would be great to to see them all back together and 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 do some kind of a documentary that brings them more into this century. The, there was a, a documentary Richard did back in '97 for PBS oh, yeah. that, that yeah. kind of got um, re reestablished for um, for the PBS pledge drive not too long ago but um you know it was filmed back in 1997 so it'd be great to have something new that was incredible i watched that whole thing oh yeah so well done very well done well, well i can't thank you enough randy this is this is a, a stunning book and you're, you're just a nice guy i can tell just by talking to you and you're very easily reached which is not true of a lot of authors <laughs> <laughs> well thank you it's my pleasure and i can't think of uh, a better way to spend i guess the last hour i really enjoyed it it's been so enjoyable there's so many questions i could ask and haven't asked and <laughs> you always think of them after you hang up but it, it's just the way it is with an interview we it's been just over an hour and 
I, I can't thank you enough. The book, again, is called An Illustrated Discography, Carpenters, by Randy L. Schmidt, out from Mascot Books. And you said July 2nd in the United States. And July 2nd officially, yeah. I hope you all get it, because it's wonderful. And this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci. 